Welcome to the University of Cincinnati MBA Thought Leadership Podcast, broadcasting from beautiful Cincinnati, Ohio, where we have the highest density of Fortune 500 companies in the nation. This show gives UC MBA students information about what's going on in the program currently, as well as thought leadership from the business and academic communities. This week on the podcast, we sat down with Rick Finley. For those who are maybe new to the Cincinnati area or didn't know a whole lot about what's going on in downtown Cincinnati. Rick Finley is that Rick Finley, so the the namesake for Finley Market. Um, but he's a lot more than just uh, his family's um, uh, contribution to the city of Cincinnati. He has done a, an amazing amount of work himself. He um, got his undergrad here at UC, then went into get his MBA also at UC. Uh, so he has a really close tie to our program, which we get into a little bit in the interview. Um, but also he's done a lot of management consulting, um, both in the pro- for-profit and the nonprofit sectors. So he's got a lot of really interesting ideas about giving back and what servant leadership is, which we've already talked about a little bit on a previous episode with Catherine Dunwoody. Um, and he talks also a lot of earlier on in the episode, but something that I had never thought about, which is the the concept of different management styles and how you can use them in conjunction with each other, um, how certain situations would call for one management style and certain management situations would call for another management style, and just knowing when to switch back and forth between them. So a lot of, a lot of really good insights that I enjoyed. Um, additionally, like I said, Rick is really tied uh, to the UC MBA program um, he's very heavily invested in making sure that this is one of the best MBA programs around. So a lot of really great information out of him and some good conversation overall. We look forward to seeing Rick at the end of the year capstone celebration, which is coming up here. Um, and that, along with other events that we've got coming up, will be in the show notes. I hope you enjoy the episode and a little preview for the next episode at the end. We're here today with Rick Finley. Uh, welcome, Rick. Welcome. Thank uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've had past roles at Convergence Corporation. Uh, you've done several different roles there as Director of Global Industry Analyst Relations, Director of Strategic Planning, Director of Marketing, and then before that in other positions where you've been at different companies, but as a Program Management Director and Director of Access Management and Regulatory Issues. So quite a few director positions here. Uh, what was one of your favorite roles that you were working in? Well, I'd say there's been a number of, of favorite roles, and um, I, I guess we'll start back with uh, when I was with Cincinnati Bell, which I spent probably 25 years with. I actually started as a co-op student, so it's a good example of someone who uh, stuck with their co-op job because I was offered so many great opportunities. Um, I think my favorite um, position there and role uh, and accomplishment was uh, I led a team that that developed the um, now the AT&T cellular system here. Mm-hmm. Uh, originally, we developed it. It was uh, with at that time Ohio Bell, which became Ameritech, which became eventually AT&T. So it was Cincinnati and Columbus area in, in the environs. So that was a huge, a huge, a project for us uh, from design and from uh, following it with the FCC, and then having it approved and then implemented it. And then now it's part of AT&T. So I'd say that's probably my probably my favorite role. Want to take on? Sure. Uh, was there, from one of these roles, a really important lesson that you took away where 
you know, really defined how you operated going forward? Yeah, I, I'd say that that um, that that probably there there are a number of things that uh, you, you can you can talk about when it comes to that, and that is uh, leading an organization, especially in the case I just gave you, where you had to lead an organization and a team, um, where you had to develop a team, put it together, develop it, grow it, and then obviously have success with it. So I think some of the things that I learned were just various leadership styles and how to to um, use those leadership styles uh, going forward. And Daniel Goldberg talks about leadership styles and he talks about several of them such as visionary coaching, democratic pace pace setting, command, probably heard of some of these and I think the thing that you have to learn and I had to learn is that you can use a lot of these skills, I'm sorry, I'm sorry leadership styles at the same time. You can use one with the other. Um, you can learn these styles. We also all have a natural style, but which one of these styles that Goldberg talks about will you want to use going forward? So I think that's one thing I had to learn mm -hmm. was what's a, what, what is the appropriate situation uh, when you apply a certain leadership style. So do you ever have to apply different leadership styles to different people? Yes, definitely. I mean, my, my theory, one of my kind of theories on management styles is, and, I, and I, I did this for 40 years, and that is with people on my teams, um, no matter how big the team was, for obviously you have to know it very well, mm -hmm. very well but uh, it's almost like a kite. You have a kite, and some, sometimes the kite is way up there high, 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 and those are, those are subordinates that you know can get the job done, don't require a lot of supervision, you can delegate a lot to them. On the other hand, you have some subordinates that might be new or maybe has some challenges. So you have that kite string, you pull it back down to earth and you hold it tight to the vest because you know those people, for whatever reason, need some type of help in growing and in doing the job right. So those are some of the styles I've, I've used. I really like to be able to good coach, um, you know, servant leadership is is a type of leadership where you're you're you're, you're showing your people um, that you care about them and you serve it to them because uh, by doing that you're going to have more productive employees, obviously. So those are some styles I've tried tried to to um, adhere to being a good coach um, and uh, having some vision for where the group ought to go. It's really interesting. I, I had never heard that before, this, this idea that um, you can use more than one style at the same time. Not only that, but uh, that leaders are able to use different styles. So I think one thing that, that I've heard asked a lot is what's your leadership style? As though there's one and it's, it's fixed and whatever your style is is what your style is. Mm -hmm. The idea, I think, that you can learn different styles mm -hmm and that it's important to be a leader who knows different styles so that based on the situation or based mm -hmm. on the person, you mm -hmm. can apply whatever you need mm -hmm. to that to get exactly. the best results. Exactly, you have to, you have to. You could have a crisis situation where you have to take command. Um, I had a colleague of mine at the Executive Service Corps who used to be head of the upper school at Summit Country Day, and he tells a story about, and I don't know if you've heard this, but uh, a few years ago, part of the school literally fell down. And so he had to be, at that point, a commanding leader. 
and that's not by nature that was not his style he was very much a coaching servant type leader wonderful man students loved him but at that particular time he had to come to a command to pull his staff together and say this is what we've got to do now and a lot of times we think of commanding type leadership as someone who's in the military but that's not always the case in that situation you may have to take charge so that was a good example of of someone who could balance those styles together. Did uh, did the people he was working with perceive him differently for a while, or was he able to return back to his normal leadership? Yeah, they, they did. There were some funny stories he used to tell about the the those those hard months uh, after this all happened, and I think his his challenge to know when to to move away from the required command commanding type uh, leadership that he had to use during that crisis to go back to his natural self was being more of a coach and serving his students and faculty. So so there's a transition there, I would think. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've gone into your professional background a little bit and some of your leadership style. Uh, Tell us more about your personal background, things that we might not pick up on just by reading about you. Well, uh, you know, personally, uh, I've always uh, enjoyed uh, growing up in Cincinnati and, as you know, going to University of Cincinnati and still being involved as much as I can. But um, I, I think that my, my personal style is, is always really wanting to continue to build relationships and build friends and stay active with my friends as much as possible. As we get older, it becomes a challenge. Mm-hmm. But also now we have, you know, social media. You know, we have social media, and or we have smartphones or whatever, which makes it easier. But um, I, I'd say just myself, I uh, not too unusual than most people. Where you know, obviously my family, my faith is very important, and my friends. And um, personally, I have always tried to stay involved in something, have a passion for something, and uh, especially when you retire, you want to have an encore, and you have, and that's where what you're passionate about is so important, which has to be reflected and should be reflected in what you're doing. So I think personally, that's what I've tried to do uh, to keep growing my mind, growing my friends, um, and uh, maintaining that type of uh, lifestyle. One thing that we were curious about is sometimes we meet people with famous last names, and we're just curious if there's pros and cons to that, or if there's really no difference. Well, you know, I never really felt that having the last name of Finley was anything, you know, unusual. I've had some interesting situations where people would take my credit card, especially at Finley Market, and mm-hmm. say, are you related? And I said, well, yes. Um, Usually it's more people who have grown up here, but it's every now and then you have people who are from outside the city who recognize the name and and, and wonder about it. And in every case, they'll want to know where you related. Well, yes, and then they'll want to know why, you know, how. And so it's a sense of pride, you know, to tell mm-hmm. some to tell somebody, yeah, you know, we have heritage that goes back to you know 1793 in Cincinnati. So it uh, it's something even my children have uh, embraced. Even have a son who lives in Chicago, who's very much still looks at the Finley Market website and what's going on there, and mm. and uh, so I think they're, I know they're definitely proud of it too. And my father was especially proud of it. So uh, he was kind of the the keeper 
of family history and things like that. But you know, I really, uh, it really hasn't been something that I've thought about that much. But as I say, you have some funny situations mm -hmm. and fun situations that come up with a name. Well, the good thing is you don't have to use Ancestry.com very often. To there there we go. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So. That's for sure. Uh, so you're going into the heritage piece. Uh, how has Finley Market changed in even the last 30 years, or has it changed that much? Well, uh, it has changed tremendously uh, in the last 30 years. It, it went from being a market that was managed by one individual at the city, and he was the market manager, who did as good a job as he could because it was just one person. Mm -hmm. But the city, along with th uh, a number of people who were part of the Friends of Finley Market, saw that there was that there was so much potential that the Finley Market could uh, attain. They saw that uh, that it was it was a regional destination, and this goes in really into our current vision to be a regional destination. We are a regional destination for local foods and for products and, and local vendors to, to sell their products and, and services. Um, it, it's also become a dynamic public gathering place. If you go to Finley Market today, uh, especially on the weekends, it's, it's over 10,000 people are going to be in and out of there on a weekend. Wow. Because we attracted over a million people over the last two years or so to the market. Um, that then really the, the bottom line is becomes a, a vital community asset. Um, visitors that come into Cincinnati, they go to a hotel and they'll be giving a brochure what to do. One of the things is go to Finley Market. Hmm. We didn't see that uh, 30 years ago. Finley Market had, um, I feel, <clears throat> a lot of, and still does, a lot of dedicated shoppers who come all the time. But now they have, um, it's taken on a wider um, uh, client base, I guess you'd say. So that's how it's changed over the years. And when you go up to Finley Market now, and you look at the changes, even the last five years, it's incredible, the development. And it's feeding off each other. So we, we are you know, involved in the development as far as having a say and, and input as to what goes on around the market. And I have to say that the city of Cincinnati has been a tremendous landlord. The city owns the actual market structure itself, mm -hmm. but we manage the corporation for Finley Market manages it. And um, it, that, and the bottom line is, it's just become such a uh, a vital part of the of the community. Yeah, it's interesting. So I um, I've done some volunteer work for Finley Market, and I'll do uh, some of those like Saturday weekend tours. Mm -hmm. And a lot of stuff, and I pride myself on knowing a fair amount about city, Cincinnati city history. Sure. Um, but there's so many things that I didn't know. So when thinking about, I, I don't know what Finley Market was doing 30 years ago, but I know there's a lot that's done now as far mm -hmm. as um, just, you know, within the bounds of, of the market itself and even beyond, you know, just getting out into the community, having uh, satellite locations. Right. There's, right. I didn't know that uh, sometimes employers will set up like a, um, a market, you know, Macy's has done it in the past. Oh. They've done stuff uh, yeah. down at Fountain Square. It's, I don't know, it's, they're, right. they're really doing a lot and it's more than just the food aspect of it. It's, it's, it's more like an overall mm -hmm. health community-wise and other, you know, they've got the uh, Finley Market Kitchen now that, you know, people are able to rent that space if they're a restaurant owner who's looking to start up or 
who's um, you know needing more space as far as refrigeration or just a prep space it's it's really kind of become I think more invested in the community than it was in the past if if that was even possible you know it's like we've all known for a while Finley Market has run the opening day parade which is a right. huge deal you right. know um, and it's it's just grown so much more beyond that though to a community invested organization I think part of it is that you know friends of Finley Market getting more involved in it that's been mm-hmm. huge mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I actually had um, some Canadian fraternity members come down and visit us this past summer mm-hmm. and they said where should we go and we went to Finley Market they were just amazed Good. that we had this place where we could get whatever they were looking for you go in the summer the beer garden's open <laughs> the, the what? the beer garden's open oh, in the yeah. summer as a matter of oh fact, gosh. it's going to be opening pretty soon. They, they were so excited, and they had to tell people, and like, we're coming back, not to see you. Right, right. <laughs> well, let me, add on, let me add on to what you were saying here, um, and, and that is about, I guess it was, let me think now, about eight years ago, we did our first huge strategic plan, and we just updated last fall. And um, it was something that I facilitated and led, um, and we... Had uh, the first time we did it on our own. The second time, Executive Service Corps came and worked with us. So, one thing that we saw the need for was to not just be a market, but as you were just saying, Paul, this is to is to have have other operations that can feed into it and feed off of each other. So, four years ago, we started the whole design of the family kitchen. And as you say, it's 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 allowing someone and has grandma's great recipe for cookies to who's grown beyond cooking the cook uh, baking the cookies excuse me at home to have a place to go and rent out a facility mm. so we have right now over you know 40 or, or something like that people that are there right now I think it's 40 maybe it's 60 but but anyway um, we <clears throat> we we have a waiting list for people and we have a turnover people are leaving now mm-hmm. some people have gone from the kitchen and into the Finley market itself some are taking their wares that they sell and or they make and they're selling it at Finley Market in stands or in set up pop-up type stands. So it feeds off each other and um, the other thing we're involved is very much so is working with the model group which has developed so much property along Race and Elm Street that is becoming fully fully rented and this includes some residential sp- space as well. You have Jean Aubert who has French Crusters now, you have Harvest Pizza so uh, we we now that adds to the the the, the nighttime uh, uh, vitality of the market, mm-hmm. and so it, it's really become broader than just selling a market. It's really an experience. So what do you think? Because you're talking about what you've been working on and how it's changed in the last thirty years and the strategic vision that you've just put in place. Where do you think Finley's going to end up in the next 20 years, or is that too far out to be thinking? That's too far out to be thinking. You know, in strategic planning, the best you can do is three years anymore. (laughs) And um, even if we look at five, um, three to five, uh, I I think that we'll probably be doing much the same thing. We just may have some additional ways of of going forward with... uh, with our mission and supporting mm-hmm. our mission. We may have more merchants. We may have different type merchants. We're trying to offer more and more services that are close to becoming, not just say a full service Kroger's. We're never, that's not our brand. Um, and we never 
worry about that. We don't worry about Kroger's putting a store in downtown. We think it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. But we have a dedicated group of shoppers that still want to come there because we are unique. That is it. We are unique. Talk about our brand. We are unique to what we do. Nobody else does it in the city. So I see us doing more of the same. Um, I see us broadening out. You mentioned going out in the community. <clears throat> now we do it, go out in the other places in the community and, and our merchants go out and temporarily, you know, for a day or a morning, bring some of the, their goods to an area like East Wall Hills as an example. Um, we've talked with developers about when they develop <clears throat> property, let's say they're putting up a new condo or apartments, put in a little shop there or a little store where they could have family market products there. This allows people to not have to all the time go down to the market. Mm -hmm. So I see us doing more and more of that, but I really haven't thought about where we'd be in five years. <laughs> we thought about where we're going to be in three years. But uh, I would hope that we'd be doing a lot of the same things. Mm -hmm. uh, so you were talking about the brand, and you think of certain brands that might change their entire brand every eight years, but then you think of other brands like Skyline and Graders mm -hmm. that are so localized, they build a brand more on the historic value, mm -hmm. and so they're completely fine with not changing that brand. There's no need. Uh, do you think Finley's like that, or is Finley trying to reinvent their brand every some years? Yeah, that's a good question. We think of brands as what's unique about uh, an organization, a company, corporation, and we think our brand is very unique, as I just said. It's, it's built on the fact that we're historic, we're unique. Uh, when we go into our, our values, we think of local as one of them. Um, we value the fact that we have fresh local produce and it's sold by local vendors mm -hmm. not national vendors um, entrepreneurial a lot of people don't realize that we have a number of we have a number of um, retailers who started Finley Market Belgian Waffle is, is one of them uh, started and still has a little stand at the, in the middle of the store where they put out waffles, right? Colonel's D Spices, Colonel, you know, he's D has just grown to be, he's now got a restaurant in Fort Thomas. He does a, he has a business, he has, has a place in Fort Thomas that he puts his own spices together and sells them. You know, he's not only in the market, but he's also in Remke stores. So we, we and there are a number of other examples of, of people moving on, a lot of them move in restaurants, right? Mm -hmm. So we think that our brand is, you know, authentic, and that we 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 really value the interactions between people all the time. They're authentic, uh, original, down-to-earth relationships between shoppers, between shoppers and vendors, and we we feel we have a, a brand that has to be responsible, responsible to keep managing this market that goes back to you know 1850s nothing like it in the country so we feel there's nothing like it in the country and of course uh, we think the brand stands for value-minded value-minded and what you go there and what you purchase we feel is a great value and it doesn't bother us that we're not the lowest price in the market mm -hmm. that's not why people come there they come there because they want a value they're very cognizant of value 
And, and so those are some core values we developed in our first strategic plan in 2012. And um, <clears throat> that's the first thing we did in your strategic plan. The first you have to do is you got to do your core values. Everything's based on the core values. All your decision making are those beliefs of those core values. So we hope that our brand embellishes and supports those, those values. So far, it seems like it does. We hope yeah, so. You've been around yeah, for so. long enough. Long enough. Keep yeah. going. <laughs> Rick, you were mentioning before your role with nonprofits, um, especially the Executive Service Corps of Cincinnati. So what does your role look like in that? I've been a volunteer consultant, and all of, all of us are volunteers uh, at the Executive Service Corps for about uh, seven years. <clears throat> so when I retired from Convergence, I wanted to do something in the community. When I was at Convergence, my job was uh, very much international. We were an international company, and mm -hmm. they still are an international company, the second largest uh, outplacement or outsourced uh, sourcing uh, call center operator in the world. Mm -hmm. So I wanted, to, since I was, my job was so focused internationally, um, I wanted to get back into the community. So I found out about Executive Service Corps and what I have done there is I'm a project manager and I specifically do strategic planning because I did a fair amount of that at Convergence. So um, I've done probably, oh, I don't know, 10, 10 or 11 projects, I don't know how many it is, over, the, over that period of time with a number of nonprofits, some large, some small. Executive Service Corps has been around since 1995. We've done over a thousand projects. Wow. We, we have, uh, just say, around 100 volunteers, about half of which now do work. Mm -hmm. we, we like to have a nice mix of, of consultants who are currently working and those who have retired, because they kind of work off each other, I mm -hmm. guess you'd say. We work as teams, and uh, one or two of us are on the pro project I'm just finishing up now. I had uh, four or five other people working with me, and they involve doing interviews, doing research, um, and actually putting together the plan. So. That's what I've been doing. I've also been a coach. We have a um, we have a program along with uh, Tower House called Excel, and this is for executive directors or individuals who espouse to be executive directors or on a fast track to be one. And it's a nine month program where they each they have nine sessions, and um, all these sessions are are, are, are around developing your skills. And then basic uh, knowledge type sessions like strategic planning, finances, mm -hmm. management, vision, you know, leadership, accounting, whatever it might be. Those are some examples. And each one of those uh, 25 people in that program get a coach. So I've done that for a number of years. So those are some of the things I've done. That's great. Uh, so we we're curious too. We have interviewed people in consulting roles before for the you know, quote-unquote for-profit sector. Mm -hmm. what, is, what are some of the differences between working and doing consulting with for-profit versus non-profit business that you might run into? Well, for-profit, and I, I did that for five years with two, uh, two firms in, in, um, in, in Denver, and what I found there is uh, that in, the pro, in, in, in consulting with for, for for-profit, the of course the bottom line is the big thing driving mm -hmm. financial performance uh, attaining uh, better operational success and that might be introducing new products going to new new segments with new areas of business wherever it is 
versus in a nonprofit, it's all about, to me, attaining the mission, mm -hmm. growing and attaining the mission. And uh, you know, nonprofits have to be worried about uh, several major things, but they have to really operate at the center, and we call it the hedgehog concept of what are you passionate about, what you're good about, and what, what drives your resources or your economic engine. In that case, for nonprofits, it's attaining their mission. And one of the challenges we have in consulting in nonprofits, especially in strategic planning, is making sure that, that the nonprofit stays at that confluence of those four three concepts. And um, it it's 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 a challenge for a lot of them to do that because they, they end up oh we'll go here we'll go there and then you have mission creep so that's the challenge we have in working with nonprofits and uh, I think either either for profit or nonprofit you still have passionate people right working for those organizations or companies but to me those are some of the differences I see. What about with working with volunteers instead of full-time employees? Does that change kind of the way you have to lead people at all? When we're dealing with with nonprofits, you know, you've got you got the board, you got the staff, you got the volunteers, you got the you have the the donors, so you have at least four different types of stakeholders, and they and their reason for supporting those organizations could be a little bit different and are a little bit different. Um, what's interesting about nonprofits is so many of the staff members, all, all four of those areas, they're all passionate about that organization. But what's interesting, in the, in, you would think, well, the employer, they're just there doing a job. Well, almost all of them, after a while, develop a passion for the organization as much so as a volunteer or a donor or a patron or however you want to describe that. Um, I think working with them could be a little bit different but they all they all have that same passion for the organization versus on the for-profit side I I wouldn't describe it in corporate America as a passion mm -hmm. because what we've the, the problem with in many cases in corporate America today is there um, there there has been a lack of people might be dedicated but they, they really don't have they don't feel that they have as much connection and loyalty to the organization anymore. And a lot of that started in the 80s when companies started to cut back, cut back, and give, you know, tell people that they didn't need them anymore for whatever reason. Usually it was not lack of, of, uh, of doing the job right, it was they were cutting back, right? So loyalty goes by the wayside. And uh, we see more and more, I see more and more loyalty on the, on the nonprofit side. That's interesting. Because we know that it used to be that when you work for somebody like Ford, you work for them for life. Right. And so now right. I think it's the average person might move job to job seven times in yeah, a lifetime. Yeah. And, and, so and you shouldn't look down at someone who comes to you and they have six or seven things in their resume. Mm -hmm. And I feel that that shows that someone is trying to grow and move on and it isn't a lack of loyalty. Mm -hmm. There is some loyalty, don't get me wrong. Sure. Um, but they want to improve their lot and do better and where they were where they were let's say five years ago and or maybe even a year ago did not provide that but you're right they could have seven different jobs ten different jobs I think it's it's interesting too I've spent uh, ten years in the workforce and one of the things that I noticed was a lot of times 
people, some of the best people within an organization will be asking for an advancement either in, um, either in rank, responsibility, mm -hmm. salary, whatever, and they're not able to get it at their current organization. So the only way that for a lot of people, at least around my age, you can advance is you have to go to a different company. You move you out know? to move up. Right. Right. And it's, it's sad that um, good organizations are losing great people. They because are. if you're hiring somebody new, it's it's easy to prioritize. Well, we need this new person, and pay them, you know, whatever they feel like they're worth, or give them whatever rank they feel like they're worth. It's harder when you've got somebody to visualize what happens if we don't do this or that. Exactly, exactly. We want to find out more about kind of your background as well, and we started mm -hmm. with that. Uh, we know that you received both your undergraduate degrees and your MBA here at the University mm -hmm. of Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. So. What kind of activities did you do in your time at UC that helped set you up for success once you graduated? Well, I was very active in, in my fraternity, and I was active in a number of activities uh, on campus. And uh, I think one of the fun activities was uh, I started uh, on, in my sophomore year. I was involved with the Greek Week uh, committee to run Greek Week. Mm -hmm. So um, they asked me if I'd run the, uh, the Queen competition. So that was great. So you met a lot of, a lot of people, obviously. Is <laughs> so, that like a, a pageant? So, the, so then the that. next year, the homecoming committee was being formed, and someone said, well, Rick ran the, uh, ran the uh, queen contest for Greek. Maybe he would like to do the homecoming mm -hmm. queen. So ended up doing that, and that was, that was a lot of fun. And uh, met a lot of people there, and still I have some of my best, my best friends were still in that committee. Um, very active and uh, leadership in my fraternity, and, and I think the one thing that I took from that is that at a young age, you have to learn how to organize something, you have to learn how to lead something, you have to get it done, uh, take responsibility for something, and you know when you're 19, 20, 21 years old, as you all can relate to, because you're closer to that than I am. <laughs> these you don't learn that in a tech in a classroom. You don't learn that at all. Now. Um, I think the co-op experience was fantastic because I was the first co-op they ever had at Cincinnati Bell. And after the first uh, the time around the quarter system, they, they gave me these projects that were crazy. And I went to my co-op coordinator and I said, either you get me another job or I'm, I'm going to go to back and do it in just four years and, get, and graduate. So finally they went to Cincinnati Bell and they revamped the whole program because um, as you well know now, uh, Cincinnati is you see, so proud of the responsible positions, and I see it here being involved with the MBA Advisory Board. I mean, the, the, the outstanding nature of you all as students, and, the, and, and those who have co-opted get that added experience of having a wonderful, um, uh, challenging co-op experience, uh, excuse me, a, a job. And um, I think that also was a benefit to me as well as I went on and I praise Cincinnati Bell for doing that because uh, they gave me some great jobs to do as I got older, right, and, and showed that I could take those on. So those were some of the things that I did. Uh, I did other activities too, but those were two of the things that just, I think, were fun and come top of mind. So not to put words in your mouth, but if you're going to make recommendations to students who are still going through college right now, it sounds like club involvement in some capacity and co-op or work experience, mm -hmm. however you can get it, are yeah. two big things that you're right right I yeah. you know Cincinnati of course uh, it's not as much of a commuter college as it used to be but there are a number of people who don't live on campus and I think it is so important 
so important to get active on campus. Just don't go to class. Do something else where you can be proud of an accomplishment, where you can become, you can identify yourself with the university. Because as alums, what draws alums to that university? It draws the fact that they had a, a fulfilling experience not in the classroom, but outside the classroom. And they did things that they can be proud of, and they made friends beyond just their classrooms. Um, I'm not downplaying the classroom part. Sure. I mean, that's why we're, we're all here. Uh, but I'd say get involved and do something on campus. You say, Joey, a club or whatever your passion is, do it. If you want to be part of the Rally Cats or um, whatever it might be, or, you, or some type of another type of organization that you have a passion for. That's good feedback to get, and especially for grad students and certainly for the MBA uh, students as well. I think Brooke um, in career management had said something about um, a student uh, in a previous MBA cohort who you know did really well in academics and then got to graduation filled out I think 500 applications for jobs and then said I don't understand why I can't get a job I did great in the classroom I filled out 500 applications it's it, it really is I think about that element where it's the relationships you're building mm -hmm. as well as the knowledge mm -hmm. that you're getting if you're just living in the classroom you're not going to make it. I think you did get one interview. Let's give him some credit. Well, just an added point on that. I, I was lucky enough over the years to hire a number of people to come into my, my organizations and teams over the years. And, and what really set the applicants apart to me was not necessarily their, their academic success. is what they did outside of that. Did they organize something? Did they run something? That were they known for something? Um, as you well know, because you've been through this, the competition again in college is, is intense. And now it's so much, uh, and even when you move on then to get a job, you go through that same application process again. Hmm. Uh, as I'm just saying, it, it, you know, first you have you get into college and then it's getting a job. So, uh, example here of getting, getting a job is. What have you done beyond the classroom? Is so important to round out the person. Are you a good communicator too? That is that is huge, because in business, uh, or if you're in the nonprofit sector, the ability to get along with people and communicate is absolutely almost number one. Rick, it's been a pleasure having you today. Thank you for coming in. Uh, hopefully, we'll get more MBA students who get a chance to meet you as well. I know we have several events coming up. It would be great to have you there in attendance. Well, I always like to, to come to, to some of them. I uh, really enjoyed uh, the attending the uh, Capstone program that, mm -hmm. that uh, we've uh, completely redone, which is marvelous. It's just great. I think these, the program has just continued to excel each year and enjoy seeing a number, a number of the students there. Yeah, we have some good projects going on this year that good. I think are going to end up really successfully. Good. So, yeah. that's good. It's, we've had some last two years. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, good to hear more coming. <laughs> Only getting better from here. <laughs> well, I appreciate your uh, asking me to, to come, and it's been most enjoyable. Yeah, thank you, Rick. Thank you. And that is it for us this week. Tune in next week when we'll have a special interview with one of our classmates. Uh, not going to reveal who it is yet, but I think everyone will enjoy hearing this next episode. 
Um, also, two weeks from now, we'll have an interview with Bob Bonder from Rheingeist Brewing Company, which was uh, certainly one of the best that we've done so far. Just um, for those who are craving more entrepreneurial content, you're going to get it in the Bob Bonder episode. So a lot of good stuff coming up. And again, check the show notes for events coming up in the program. And we'll see you next week.